0: It's Friday, November 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Parents, be on alert. This is the first holiday shopping season without Toys R Us, and you need to start shopping earlier or risk losing out on the hottest toys of the season. Other stores like Target and Walmart are trying to pick up the slack with expanded toy sections for the holidays but it might not be enough. My producer Miranda joins us for how retailers are trying to pick up business from their dying rivals. Next, with the announcement of Amazon's new HQ2 and HQ3 locations, an increasing practice that tech giants employ when trying to make land grabs is coming to light. Local government officials often sign non-disclosure agreements while negotiating terms, and it could be hurting the cities they settle on. Caroline O'Donovan, BuzzFeed news reporter, joins us for how NDAs keep the public in the dark. Finally, immediately after the midterms passed, many started turning their attention to 2020. But before donors start bundling their money and backing candidates, everyone wants to know if Beto O'Rourke will be running for president. David Siders, national political correspondent for Politico, joins us to discuss if the progressive star will throw his hat in the ring. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: Target reallocated 250,000 square feet of permanent retail space across 500 locations just for toys. And Walmart did basically the same. And it's because they're the only places where you can see these toys in real life before
0: buying them. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. This is going to be the first year without Toys R Us. That means that parents need to start shopping earlier or you're going to risk losing out on all those hot toys. You know, every year there's a rush on certain little things and if you don't order it early you're out of luck at that point they're saying it's going to be even worse now that places like toys R Us are out of business so the ceo of toy consulting firm kids brands insight says it's usually normal to be out of stock on the hottest toys towards christmas this year can be worse than usual And it's all because Toys R Us accounts for about 15 to 20 percent of all U.S. toy sales.
1: Companies like Target and Walmart have expanded their toy sections. And trust me, Oscar, I have noticed (laughs) when I try to go shopping with my daughter. Target reallocated 250,000 square feet of permanent retail space across 500 locations just for toys. And Walmart did basically the same. And it's because they're the only places where you can see these toys in real life right. before buying them. Costco started two weeks before Halloween. Kohl's, JC Best Buy. They're all shoring up shelf space for more toys.
0: The reason why Toys R Us not being there is such an important factor is that Toys R Us, that is their business. They have toys year round. They have huge warehouses where they stock those toys all the time. These other retailers, Target, Walmart, they sell a lot of other stuff. Food now, I Mm -hmm. mean, clothing, home goods. So their warehouses are stocked with everything. And they can't allocate that much space to just toys. They
1: get very concerned with ordering toys for the holiday season in as early as July, September, because they get worried that they're not going to sell them and they're going to have to cut a huge loss right.
0: after Christmas. Everything you don't sell, you have to sell eventually. And then that's when stuff goes on clearance. And that's not a bad time to buy it. But still good for, th- for us, bad for them. Exactly. They say that so far, some of the hottest toys out there and these are funny. I had to look each one of these up. LOL Surprise Dolls. Mm-hmm. Have you seen these? Do you know what these are? Yeah, they're cute. They're like little tiny dolls and they have big heads and big eyes. Like, like brats dolls almost, but they're like little kids versions. Yeah. They
1: look like Easter eggs. They come packaged in these pink Easter eggs and you don't know what you're getting right. until you get it.
0: It's that surprise factor. Well, That's why they're called LOL Surprise Dolls. It's right. that surprise factor that the kid has. You don't know what it is, but inside it's a cute little doll. For real pets. You said your daughter has one of these? She has one. It's called Tyler the Tiger. And
1: it's a life-size little tiger cub. And it's animatronic. And it's AI. So you can growl at it. And it'll growl back at you. And you scratch it. And it starts purring. They're very cute.
0: I looked at a video of one of this. It does high fives. You can feed it treats. It says it has over 100 sounds and motions. Mm -hmm. And it even poops after you give it the treats. Oh, mine
1: doesn't. Thank (laughs) God. I don't need anything else doing that.
0: Don't step in it, board game. This one is (laughs) funny. So imagine this. You have a blindfold Then they give you these little Play-Doh poops and a plastic mat. And then you put the poops on the mat and then (laughs) you walk blindfolded across the mat barefoot and hoping to avoid the poop. And if you step in it, Obviously, like you lose. lose. Yeah. (laughs) So the goal is to just make it across. But look up these commercials on YouTube. They're hilarious. I'm going to get that for my So apparently that's like one of the hot sellers. A lot of people still say it's too early to tell which toys are going to be the hottest. But Target and Walmart, as we were saying, a lot of these other places picking up the slack are stocking up on uh, the toys such as these that are going to be tops on the list. And then a bunch of last year's favorites.
1: But it's not just toys where these stores are trying to monopolize lost market. Companies like Casper and even Kohl's and Lowe's are jumping in on the bankruptcy game. Lowe's is acquiring Craftsman, which was a mainstay of Sears. Kohl's is acquiring tons of makeup and they're getting into the beauty game because a department store based on the East Coast called Bonton also shuttered their doors. And uh, Casper is trying to take over for Mattress Firm, which filed for Chapter 11.
0: Specifically on Lowe's, since Sears is going by the wayside now, they're estimating about $2.5 billion to $3 billion is up for grabs just in those appliances mm-hmm. and tools and things like that. Casper, as you mentioned, they're doing pop-ups in places like Nordstrom, where Mattress Firm had a presence before. Everybody's trying to pick up the slack, but those toys, if you don't want your kids to be nagging you, You got to make sure to get early on. Get
1: on it now. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar.
2: Well, obviously, you're going to see more pressure on housing. I think you're going to see a building frenzy in both New York and Virginia. And obviously, in both of those places, there's room to grow. They chose large cities, but they went to the edge of those cities so that there was some room for people to commute to work, for people to find housing.
0: Joining us now is Caroline O'Donovan. BuzzFeed News reporter. It was just last week that we learned where Amazon headquarters two and three were gonna go to Long Island City in New York and Crystal City in Virginia. They're gonna be spending about $5 billion in investment there, 25,000 people, uh, new employees across both locations. In many cases, these are great things for those cities. It's gonna bring a lot of economic development, but a lot of times what happens before, since they need to buy up so much real estate, a lot of these tech companies will make local officials sign non-disclosure agreements then the public doesn't really know what's going on Uh, a lot of times we find out later there's millions of dollars in tax benefits and all sorts of crazy things that the public has no idea of because officials are signing all these non-disclosure agreements but this is like an increasing practice for a lot of these tech companies what do we know about that
3: this is Thing I've actually been interested in for a while now, but I think that the Amazon HQ2 decision threw it into the limelight in that people were expecting one city to get all those jobs and all of that economic benefit. And then in the last few days before they finally announced, we started hearing rumors from reports from the Wall Street Journal that turned out to be true that Amazon was actually going to split the investment between two cities plus a little extra thrown in for Nashville. And that surprised people. And I think that it drew attention to this idea idea of cities are negotiating these deals with tech companies and with big industry without citizens and in some cases without government officials really having a clear sense of what's on the table, which creates a situation in a lot of cases where there, there may have been a public meeting or a short window of time where people could have reviewed the details of what a city's offering a tech company in order to get them to build an office or a data center or what have you in their location, by the time most people realize or have a real reckoning with what the consequences of that are going to be, it's basically too late. And the reason for that is because like you said, cities have a lot to gain, right? They they want jobs, they want the taxes, and in hopes of guaranteeing those incentives for their cities, they, they're sort of passing by the part of democracy that's a little bit messier, where people might actually have to fight over and disagree with some of the decisions that they're making. Amazon HQ2 was an interesting example of this, but there are other tech companies doing it as well, right, where they sort of, in some cases, um, we don't get into this too much in the article, they'll even use pseudonyms, right? They won't say, this is Facebook. They'll say it's something else, begin negotiations, and sort of create this culture of secrecy around the deal until it's announced, at which point it's basically too late for people to push back against it. So I know in New York and Long Island City, there have been groups and people saying, now's the time we have to say no and stop this from happening. But I think the reality is that the negotiation is done, the deal's been made. And at that point, it's a little bit late to start start involving the public.
0: Yeah, and housing activists say that these big influxes of tech companies opening new places could push out uh, poorer families. A lot of times they'll skirt environmental rules and regulations because... As you said, the local officials are just trying to get the deal done. In uh, some of the reporting here, some local officials are even saying you have to sign these NDAs right away to keep all the negotiations hush hush, because if you don't do it right away, you lose their business off the bat. They're not even going to talk to you because you're not going to sign these things.
3: It's important to acknowledge as well that every city is different, right? The risks for every city are different and what every city needs is different. So in the case of San Jose in the Bay Area, which is where Google has been negotiating the purchase of some land to build a a transit center Hub, a large campus there. This is the Bay Area. Rent is super high, and that's the number one concern for people. It's not so much that I don't have a job; it's that I have a job, and that's not covering my rent and all of my bills. And so, if you build this, and people start buying up commercial land around it and investing in real estate, we won't be able to live here anymore. That's the concern in California. In other places, you know, I talked to an economic development official in Waukee, Iowa. The situation there is: it's a small town that's growing into a larger town. It's kind of a it for people, it's growing quickly. That individual said, you know, in order to keep up with what these new families who are moving here expect, we need to increase our tax base. And making this deal with Apple was a really great way to do that. He also said, you know, Iowa, there's already been a deal in Des Moines with Facebook that set a pretty low bar is the way he put it in terms of the kind of incentives that the city was offering. But, you know, everyone needs something different. Some places really, really need jobs. Some places really need more money to build more infrastructure and stuff. And then in some places, the rising rents that are associated with that are going to be a big problem for certain families. So I think that's kind of what these government officials are grappling with. On the one hand, they don't want to be pushed around in secret deals by giant tech companies, of course. But on the other hand, the size of these companies and the amount of money and business they could potentially bring is really significant. And it's not something I think that based on my conversations with these folks, they don't feel it would be a responsible decision to do something where the company would walk away. And yeah, that's exactly what this official in Iowa said.
0: Talk a little bit about Wisconsin, because they just made a big deal with Foxconn. They're going make a big TV screen factory there and now that the deal has been done, residents in Mountain Pleasant there aren't so sure that it's going to be the big benefit to them that they originally thought so. The state is reallocating like $90 million from public road budgets to help pay for infrastructure related to the Foxconn deal. So residents aren't all happy with it now.
3: Yeah, there's been a lot of good reporting coming out of Wisconsin, I think. you know First of all, there's the question of the 13,000 jobs that Foxconn promised to create and still says that it intends to create. Are those going to be low-wage jobs, entry-level jobs that anyone could have? Or as it's increasingly seeming, are those going to be skilled positions that there aren't that many people in Wisconsin or in that immediate area anyway they can fill, which led to rumors which Foxconn has denied that they might be actually hiring some people from China to fill those positions. I think that information on top of environmental concerns, because there were some regulations that they've been granted a reprieve from following in that area on top of, yes, what's actually happening to the physical land around there. So people having to move out of their homes and then obviously needing a lot of budget for roads in various projects and there has been concern that that wasn't a great deal it was originally made out to be when the deal was signed and when <laughs> ground was broken with great fanfare and yeah, i was and- able to speak with a state senator from Wisconsin, Senator Tim Carpenter, who expressed concern. He's on the board of the economic council that was tasked with giving final approval to this deal. And this is actually not unusual, my understanding from how this particular body works. And this is a trend in local government, these economic councils that are sort of para-governmental. So you might have business leaders on them, you might have elected officials on them, they may or may not necessarily be subject to the same open records and transparency laws that a city council or legislature might be necessarily. He was on the board tasked with approving that job and He expressed concern when it was happening, saying, I know we don't normally read full contracts for things like this, but I'm worried that we're being taken advantage of. I'm worried that we're not considering things that could change later in the game. We need to have ways to make sure that we hold Foxconn to their word. And he told me that he had repeatedly asked the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation for a copy of the full contract. And from his perspective, he said he had a very hard time actually getting a hold of that document and only had 24 hours to review it before the final vote.
0: In Um, that case, it was a lawyer for the Economic Council that signed that NDA on behalf of them. So, you know, he's in the council there in that little agency, and he's trying to get more details. And because the lawyer for the group signed the NDA, he can't get a lot of that information. Carolina O'Donovan, BuzzFeed News reporter, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: I am forever grateful to every single one of you for making this possible. I believe in you. I believe in Texas. I believe
0: in this country. I'm as hopeful as I have ever been in my life. Joining us now is David Siders, national political correspondent for Politico. So immediately after the midterm elections ended right away, the first two things people said was Trump's 2020 campaign begins right now. And the same thing on the Democratic side, the Democratic 2020 campaign (laughs) begins right now. And a lot of people were focusing on the Senate just because there's a lot of senators that are up for running for president. There's Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren. There's all sorts of people. Beto O'Rourke had this spark that happened during the midterms. He didn't win in his race against Ted Cruz. But he's got donors and supporters prodding him to run for president, maybe even run for the Senate again in 2020 against John Cornyn. And then there's all sorts of Democratic fundraisers and donors that are kind of putting their stuff on hold because they want to know if he's going to run. I mean, he's captured some excitement on the Democratic side. What do we know about that? To say the
2: primary began on the day after the midterms is probably underselling the amount of work that these candidates had already been doing for the past, geez, almost a year, I think, uh, laying groundwork for 2020 campaign. And O'Rourke really came out of nowhere. And as you said, was very close in the Texas race. And because of that, not only because he was close, but because of how much money he was able to raise and because of how he raised that money through a national network of small donors, that suggested a potency that has Democratic consultants and other politicians, too, and donors reevaluating the field.
0: In the third quarter of his race, he raised $38 million. I think in total, it was about $70 million that he raised. And you write in your article about these Democratic money bundlers that are just kind of on hold. They want to see whether he's going to jump in. And not everybody wants to throw all their money behind somebody before O'Rourke jumps in the race, and then they kind of miss out on that. Explain to us real quick what money bundlers are, how they work in this world of fundraising.
2: In the highest levels of fundraising, before you really had this surge in online small dollar donations that could fund a campaign, and even still now they're important. These What these bundlers do is that if you're a contributor on your own writing a $2,700 check, you're not really a big fish in a presidential campaign. The, the way you become one is to bundle those kind of donations, which means to get your friends and colleagues and other people but, you know, to give lots of money all together. And then you become known to the candidate as somebody who can gather people together and give a bunch of money. Oftentimes that'll happen, say, at a fundraiser, that if you're a bundler, you would throw at your house with all of your friends there writing a lot of checks.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the excitement around Beto O'Rourke, because it's funny that TMZ is even tracking him down, asking him if he's running for president. People are saying, you know, this new cycle is not Bernie's army, it's Beto's army. What did he run on during the Senate race for those that aren't very familiar with him? And why does he have this spark?
2: Well, that's a very interesting point about why he's appealing nationally is one of the reasons he probably lost in Texas, which is that he, in the general election, did not moderate his views to appeal to conservatives in Texas and ran as a progressive Democrat. When you look at the entire candidate field on the Democratic side, there's going to be eight, nine, ten progressive Democrats running. And if Beto runs, he'll be included in that group. And of those candidates, the ideological shades will be muted, right? They'll all have similar characteristics. And so really what the elector will be looking at is the candidate's profile. They'll be looking for some kind of factor beyond just a policy position to separate them. And then ultimately, I think, to decide who they think can best take on Donald Trump. I don't know what the answer is to that but i don't think it's going to come down to what a candidate's view is on fracking for example
0: there at politico you guys had a poll from last week that said beto o'rourke would be in third place among democratic voters behind joe biden and bernie sanders of people that they would want to run
2: what's i think interesting about that poll is that these very early polls mostly are a, a gauge of name recognition joe biden and bernie sanders have in all of these early polls not just the ones that we've run Run at the top of those. And I think it's largely because they both run for president. Joe Biden was a vice president. They have a lot of name ID. What's interesting about this poll is that Ed O'Rourke is there and it does demonstrate, I think, that he has a national footprint and at least puts him on the map.
0: Explain to us a little bit about the historical precedent for O'Rourke to win. I just like the way you wrote it. I mean, nobody's gone from the House to the presidency since 1880.
2: Yeah, it's been a long time. (laughs) But anytime you talk about historical precedent in the post Trump world, people immediately say, if Donald Trump won, that means anybody can run. And in fact, the first candidate who has declared, John Delaney, the congressman from Maryland, is a, a congressman, and he's already spent a couple of million bucks in Iowa. It's fair to call him a long shot, but anybody thinks that they have a chance if they have a message that resonates and a little money behind it. The historical precedent that O'Rourke would rather have us focus on is Abe Lincoln. That's somebody who lost campaigns for Senate a couple of times before running for president.
0: The Democrats are looking for a star right now. You know, they have nobody since uh, Barack Obama left office, and they're looking for somebody to kind of fill that gap that will bring in older voters and younger voters alike. David Sider's National Political Correspondent for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for this week. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcasts on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.